It has widely been accepted that the growth cannot be considered as the best and only indicator of development. As long as we have data, we can bring them into the talk. If we don't have data, then it will still be like lip service to say, yes, we want to be going beyond GDP, but we don't know exactly what and why. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Next Page, our podcast at the UN Library and Archives Geneva, designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. I'm Natalie Alexander, and today we have an episode that delves into data. It's all around us in our daily lives. But how important is data for multilateralism today? Especially as we look to Agenda 2030 and measuring our progress to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs. I'm joined in the studio by Ruzana Tarvedian, founding president of the Geneva Consensus Foundation and author of the book, Measuring Sustainable Development Goals Performance, as well as Edward Michaud, Acting Director of the SDG Lab at UN Geneva. How can we really measure if we're achieving the SDGs? Are countries ready to integrate the social, economic and environmental dimensions of development in their policies? What does the data tell us about crises and our ability to face future challenges? And how can science impact multilateralism? We explore these questions and more. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the podcast, Rosanna and Edward. Good day. Hello. Nice to be here with you, Natalie and Rosanna. Thank you very much, Natalie, for giving us the chance to share and connect. Let's begin with just a brief introduction to both of you. Rosanna, you're the founding president of the Geneva Consensus Foundation, Conseiller Municipal at the Ville de Genève, and co-author with Sten Thor of the book, Measuring Sustainable Development Goals Performance, which we are going to be diving into today. You basically wear many hats. So if you could briefly describe yourself to our audience, that would be wonderful. Why did you create the Geneva Consensus Foundation? But also just briefly, what were your main objectives in writing this book? Thank you very much. So before becoming Geneva Consensus Foundation's president or writing the book, I served for 10 years the government of Armenia. So I had the privilege to manage first seven World Bank projects for the country. I was also leading Armenia's aid coordination center. So all that experience exposed me to the work with multilateralism, with all bilateral and multilateral organizations. Then I moved to Geneva to work for the International Labor Office. And one of my tasks was in the policy integration department to look at how globalization influences decent work. And here we were looking at two multidimensional phenomena, both globalization and decent work. For those who don't know, decent work has four dimensions, employment, protection, dialogue, and the standards, and the globalization itself with trade, investment, etc. So at that point, I had to do the research how one can analyze the multidimensional phenomenon. And our research with Stentor already culminated in our first book, which was titled Diagnostics for a Globalized World. It was published by the World Scientific in 2015, and the book was launched during WTO Public Forum. And uh, Stentor wrote in his uh, foreword, the idea methodological approaches were presented in the book, but for the practical application, we need an institutional setting where we could bring our knowledge into action. And it was at that moment when the Geneva Consensus Foundation was created. So the foundation, in fact, was created to give us the possibility to apply our own knowledge, our own approach and methodology 
technology in UN deliberations in other processes. In 2016, we wrote an article when we're using the data of World Economic Forum, we tried to assess sustainable competitiveness of nations. That research paper struck the attention of European Economic and Social Committee. So the committee borrowed our definition of sustainable competitiveness. And um, to our great surprise and pride, during the plenary session, there was a votation whether they would choose the definition of the World Economic Forum or what me and Professor Storr were proposing. And with a large majority of votes, the members chose to use our definition. Following that success, Elsevier approached us to see if we can build on that research and expand it to a book. And actually, it was not specifically our purpose, but that's the genesis, the origin of the second volume, Measuring Sustainable Development Goals Performance. Indeed, this book builds on the first one, but already given the availability of data and changing landscape, we have done some additional research there as well. Yeah. And we're about to, to look into more of the details of what you found in the book. But firstly, to Edward, you are the acting director of the SDG Lab at UN Geneva. And we really wanted you here as part of this conversation to kind of bridge this gap between academia and also what this means in practice as we look at multilateralism at the UN. So let's kind of weave in your contributions today by starting with the basics. What are the SDGs for those who don't know and why as a global community should we care about them? Well, thank you, uh, Natalie. So the SDGs, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, they're known by this acronym SDG. They really represent a global roadmap for a better planet, for a more sustainable and I would say balanced lifestyle for every person on this planet. The 17 goals touch all of us and they act as a kind of a litmus test of how we as humanity are advancing on the social on the economic and also the environmental progress that we want to achieve through the SDGs. So this roadmap was launched in 2015 by 193 member states, so all member governments of the United Nations. And the purpose really is to see not only how we can have a better life for everyone on the planet, but also to make sure that progress that we've had already with the previous set of development targets, the Millennium Development Goals, MDGs, we're from 2000 to 2015, the SDGs from 2016 to 2030, actually to build and go forward. So it's not find ourselves at 2030, we've achieved everything and that's it, we stop. No, it's about a continuum of progress to advance humanity and also to ensure that uh, future generations will be able to benefit from the same type of opportunities and the same potential that we have today and hopefully going forward. Thanks for explaining that to us. And actually, there is a series that we did with Edward and the SDG Lab. It takes a global crisis, so we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes if you'd like to understand a bit more about what we explored in terms of how the SDGs were impacted, but also perhaps a lot of work was made to to improve upon our, our progress on the SDGs through um, the COVID-19 pandemic. But let's now take a look at the book's findings so we can dive into, into Rosanna's work. So, Rosanna, you mentioned a bit about the foundation, and it is a lot inspired by the fact that as an international community, we have the SDGs and they really do inspire us to try and integrate the social, the economic and the environmental dimensions of development. And you spoke about sustainability earlier um, so that we can develop sustainably. But I guess one of the key challenges we're facing as a society is that a lot of government policies and programs and work does not necessarily integrate these pillars into one integrated form. So this is a huge challenge in terms of governance. What has the book found in terms of 
the main findings about this dilemma towards progress in achieving the SDGs? So the, the problem we are facing is to find a methodological framework that will be capable of bringing in different dimensions of development into one single framework. And the biggest problem here, the researchers and uh, practitioners find, is that the development dimensions, they are measured in different units, like if we speak about the growth or social development or environmental, each domain is applying a different unit of measurement. And the advantage apparently of our data envelopment analysis is precisely that it's capable to bring in, in a single analytical framework, units or development dimensions that are not commensurable. So which means one idea can be in kilograms, the other unit can be measured in uh, percentage, etc. And that was like apparently the advantage of this methodology, which is a tool of operations research, which we have applied. And um, the methodology was first found in 1978, but we have brought it to a higher level to look at the performance of countries with them. So what we are doing is we are looking at the effectiveness of national and international policies. What that implies that we take a certain set of policy measures and given the fact that we have data for those dimensions and we take performance evaluate criteria. And depending on a set of policy and performance dimensions we choose, each time we are answering to different questions. So which means the methodology is very flexible depending on availability of data for, for which dimension we have a data, then we can address that particular issue. So uh, in our earlier work, we have looked at different set of countries, but in this particular one, we look at the OECD countries. I would like to mention expressly here that the analytical work is done by my co-author, Stan Tor, and uh, uh, this is his own research, which what has been reported in the part one. So for this particular study, we look at the OECD countries and we look at the data on specific set of SDGs. For example, we took an obesity as an indicator for SDG2. We take population using least basic sanitation services as an indicator of SDG6. So for the SDG8, which stands for employment, we took the unemployment. So for the SDG9, we took a number of mobile broadband subscriptions, etc. So by using a specific set of indicators, we're able to assess how the OECD member countries were performing. And as data shows, there were about six countries which were assessed to be not efficient, which means their performance would have been improved in comparison with the rest of the countries in the sample. So one advantage of this approach, data envelopment analysis in a general sense, is it compares countries with a similar set of indicators, So, which means it creates hypothetical model of the frontier, and then it tries to see how other countries can be improved compared to their neighbors. So that's a specific scientific advantage of this technique. So breaking this down for, you know, those who are not in data, (laughs) maybe there's two things that I'd like to to ask you. Um, Number one, what does this methodology mean in terms of country's ability to measure and appropriately communicate on whether they're making progress? I think that's maybe one thing, but maybe Edward has some questions as well. And then I would like to ask you, because you mentioned that we could compare neighboring countries. How could this work in terms of helping us to build progress regionally? Absolutely. Thank you very much. I think that's an important question to clarify because, as you rightly said, speaking about data envelopment analysis in a few minutes is really complicated. So this technique derives empirical transformation function. 
What we say is we know countries or units are trying to improve their performance. That's their political agenda, that their determination. But sometimes the data shows that even though they prescribe importance to a particular domain of performance, the actual number shows they are lacking short behind what they would have liked to reach. So what the methodology does, it looks at a similar unit that transforms inputs to the outputs, which means it can compare city to a city, enterprise to an enterprise, country to a country as long as they're homogeneous in terms of their objective and other operational framework. And then the model as such derives inefficiencies, which means it says, okay, how is it possible that country A was managing to get more outcome using the same level of policy inputs? And then what is the advantage of it in terms of their actual policy making? They can see which other countries were doing better. And then go on to where, where are the inefficiencies, which means where is it where they were lacking? And they can learn from the other countries. And the advantage of this technique is that it identifies peers from among a set of units. So in another way of looking at it, if you take a country and compare the country with its previous performances, so which means each year of a country is being considered as a single observation. And we are looking at how the country was doing during previous years and identifying the successful years when the performance was better than before. And then we would try to understand what made the country's success in that particular year and going deep down to see what change has happened. Maybe it was being political or some other policy measures were introduced, which was not captured by the model. So the model provides the first come that will serve as a basis for decision making. Edwin, did you want to jump in here? No, it's quite fascinating, uh, Roxana. And I think the, you mentioned a few points, one being the localization. That's really important. And I'd just like to get maybe your thoughts on uh, within the UN itself, the process of reporting on progress on the SDGs. That's done through the annual high-level political forum it's also known as, a, as an acronym, HLPF, and countries prepare voluntary national reviews, these uh, VNRs that capture progress. And each year, the UN will put forward the goals that are going to be reviewed, and then countries present progress. So how do you see your model, the methodology that you employ, how do you see that against the, let's say, the VNR, the voluntary national review process? Because I think that point of localization is also very key, looking at cities, uh, city by city, making it tangible. I'd just like to get your thoughts on yeah, that. Thank you. So one important thing I have to highlight about the methodology is that if in standard theory we presume that countries are in equilibrium or they are or they must deliver the maximum development outcome, here we are being more realistic. So what we're saying is what are doables? So which means if a specific level of development is theoretically presumed to be possible, but the data shows that no country can take an employment, the dream would be to have 100% employment, but we know that no country is insuring. So the, this method, in fact, will consider the highest possible performance level, the doable, as the best so as a frontier. So and then look at the other countries in related relation to this not hypothetical actual performance level. So this is the key difference from our methodology to the others because we accept the fact of having non-equilibrium situation and then we say it's possible for a country or a state to stay in not equilibrium situation for many many years forever. So that's a key difference because classical theory presumes that there is a full employment, which is not true. 
So looking at the country's performance and their voluntary reviews the same, so we will look at the country's performance and say, okay, we look at the data and we objectively can see that there are specific limits of their growth possibilities or performance possibilities. And then depending on uh, improvements that the model will derive, we could go back and say, okay, you can make some reallocation in specific fields and improve the, your performance in this particular domain because there is another country which seems to be successful in doing so. So this means that we have to have first data for specific set of countries which are identical in terms of their size, structure, etc. And by comparing their performance, identify where the inefficiencies are and advising a particular country for how they can do it. Speaking at the higher level already, at high level political forum, and that will be a dream for us to see that our work is being applied, that that's higher side, I mean, political level, that's what we go for in the foundation, is that if we take each individual agency can identify a specific set of uh, objectives, and uh, with specific data sets. And we can try to see at a global level which countries are doing best, where are the inefficiencies. And by presenting it at a higher political level, the decision makers can analyze and see, okay, so we see in a country A seems to be like star performer. And the important thing to add here, the star performers cannot be only from advanced countries, but it can be from underdeveloped countries. Why? Because model will compare African countries with their own neighbors. In a sense of neighbors, I mean statistic neighbors in terms of the mix of their inputs and outputs. So it will not compare Armenia with the USA because, I mean, we are a small country, they are large, and our data has a huge difference. And this is not something which is done conventionally. But conventionally, we compare all countries just to the same line. But the DEA groups countries based on their mix of uh, variables. I think that's quite an important point to make that not all countries simply do not start from the same starting line. So making sure that's really reflective in the data and how we communicate it. Yeah, and I think this, uh, like you said, comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges, I think that that really makes sense to to understand the progress on targets. I mean, Natalie, if I, if I may, in that case, then would you say that it's, it would be more appropriate to follow this type of methodology in, in terms of, of measuring SDG progress? Because currently we look, uh, as you said, we look at the, the high-level political forum and, and the voluntary national reviews. It kind of groups everyone more or less in the same assessment basket. And then maybe to be a bit provocative, how do we ensure, though, that countries are all advancing maybe even beyond their 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 capable levels mm -hmm. and aiming for that ambition of the 2030 agenda so it might not be 100% employment but of course looking at indicators across say uh, gender equality climate engagement renewable energy etc how do we bring everyone forward, but also recognizing the, the differences? So I think here what we are looking at is different type of, we can have different way of models like development catch up, what you said. So we can set specific targets and say, okay, we want countries to reach specific level, but then we want them to go beyond their actual development and reach much more. So, I mean, it's our ambition and dream precisely that the method will reach the application at the higher level. So what theoretically could happen is that this is more like resource allocation technique. So which means if you take the World Bank or 
other development banks which want to distribute resources, they would need to have a criteria to assess the performance of countries for their allocation of the resources to achieve the SDGs. So for certain countries, based on their efforts, if the data shows that the country A is performing brilliantly, as you said, but if we add some resources, then they can reach even more. And then they will ensure more gender equality, they can ensure more employment uh, or more education outcomes. This is precisely the objective and advantage of this technique, that by looking at the inputs, we can say, okay, if we change a little bit inputs in a particular domain, what will be the change and increase in the output? And all, all otherwise, to put the question differently, how much we have to change a specific input to assure a particular level of output. So that is precisely the outcome or the results or advantage of this technique. That can be, as I mentioned earlier, like a resource allocation methodology for development banks to say, okay, we look at uh, 50 countries and if we have X amount of money to distribute, if we globally share it with XYZ country, which are defined efficient or inefficient by the model, then the total overall development outcome will be much higher than if we do it alternatively. I think that's a good example to share and it it actually brings me to to ask you about what this means in terms of allocation and support during a crisis. So so you mentioned that this model could be very helpful in terms of the multilateral community in allocating resources and support if countries are not able to make progress. What about in terms of a crisis like COVID-19 or the climate crisis which we're facing? How can this model help us as an international community to understand how complex progress is in the face of a crisis? So here again, it all depends on data. As the name of the methodology is called data envelopment analysis, it implies as long as we can have a measurement or data for a particular domain of development, it can be crisis in terms of health, environment, economic, you name it, banking sector, financial, whatever. If we manage to collect data, then based on our past performances, we will be able to define our future. So which means connecting, in other words, what we call ex ante and ex-post performance. So based on data for our past performance, we will be able to say if a particular domain drops to like a crisis, to a specific level of development, what will be the impact of the rest of the development domains, performance variables. So as long as we have a data, we should be able to make this type of assessments. And Edward, to you then, as we look at, you know, what we face with COVID and, and also just generally the global challenges we're facing today, what is it do you feel as at least a part of your work in understanding how in the multilateral sphere we look at the SDGs and progress? What are the biggest challenges we need to overcome to be able to measure progress accurately? Maybe not necessarily just accurately, but multilaterally, really understanding what it means as a whole. Over to you. I think one of the the challenges, and I guess to look at it also as an opportunity just to share an example. So at the SDG Lab, and I maybe should have started off with that as well, our role here in, in Geneva and being part of the United Nations office at Geneva is to really act as an SDG entry point for the international Geneva Geneva community. So that means the United Nations, permanent missions, representing governments, uh, academia, civil society, other international organizations to, to tap into, to better uh, network and connect this expertise and know-how to actually have impact at country level. So I think from our side, one example that I can give is our work that we've done on sustainable finance. What we see there in terms of finding a common understanding of measuring impact, but also labeling. What do we mean by sustainable finance? And that really looks at also the, the data side, but also you spoke about, Rosanna, about the, the comparability 
if we think of, say, green investments, what do we mean? Who measures what? How do we understand uh, how to actually put forward products in the financial services sector that are comparable and or maybe not? That I think that's so some of the, the dilemmas. So our work here in Geneva, beyond, say, the sustainable finance, is also concretely looking at all what the different actors are doing here on data. Geneva has a wealth of organizations. Look at data measurement, progress, visualization, communication, and how to have maybe even a, a stronger collaboration of these organizations that are here. So that's one thing that we that we're looking at right now. And I would say the uh, the other challenge or maybe not as a challenge, but I would say that without governments, uh, local leaders, communities, companies, unless they don't use the data to inform decision making, then data on its own has no real impact. It's just there. It's it's numbers, uh, it's statistics. So I think that's one of the big asks that the United Nations and other organizations have been putting forward is, is that we have this tremendous wealth of data, probably at least in our lifetime, so much information that, that is available in different formats, but putting it to use, using that data to inform decision making at global level, at regional level, at national level and local level. I think that's, uh, that's so important. You both mentioned data and of course, it's all around us. Rosanna, as part of the book, I mean, you mentioned even during a crisis, collecting accurate data is the most important thing to be able to respond. What are some of the key recommendations that the book puts forward with regard to how we can use data appropriately to measure progress towards the SDGs? All the methodology in the book is about precisely to help policymakers to take informed decisions. So which means the, uh, depending on the specific question, the book allows the decision makers, practitioners to use the data under their um, domain and drive the best policy choices. If we look at the development of schools, for example, the Ministry of Education or Department of Education, they can look at, depending on the numbers at their disposal, months in the school are influencing the performance of children. Or depending on the health sector, the practitioners in a particular sector, they can look at see how investments or the numbers of beds at hospitals will employ the development of the health outcome. To, to make it short, I have to repeat again that data envelopment analysis was originally created to help decision makers or what we call decision making units to use at the, the resources at their disposal to ensure maximum development outcome. And uh, as we are having data, the multilateral structures, as Edward mentioned, each institution in the UN is responsible for a particular domain of development. And they are collecting data for that specific domain. And speaking about multilateral development banks, even the name multilateral, but still they are also covering particular set of countries, which means each institution has some restrictions for their operations. They can either not go beyond the specific field of competence, or they cannot go beyond specific regional priorities. So this method apparently is perfectly suited to help them to make choices either within their regional restrictions, so they are going to compare countries or units in a particular region because the method does not imply 
a priori like uh, expert opinions. So they can look at the data and say, this is a set of countries, these are the set of variables. How do we improve our performance, take the best choices? And also, if we take them all together in one framework, if each UN agency comes in, their de- development objective and provide their development and uh, the data to support what they want to achieve, then again, we can say, what is the global optimal choice for the global world, given actual development situation that is exactly dictated by the data. Mm. Um, So we've looked at the model and looking at measuring the SDGs more holistically, looking at regional comparisons, looking at the fact that not all countries are at the same level. So taking that into account, we've looked at the importance of data and how much work we, we still have to do there. Rosanna, there are a few other things that your book highlights. And so I'm just very curious to ask you to ask you about them and break it down for our audience. You mentioned a call for a new social contract between global partners in the book and a few other terms. Can you walk us through what this means and why is it important? Absolutely. I have a great pleasure because that's exactly for me the most exciting part of the book. So firstly, I would like to say that the name that I attach to the foundation Geneva Consensus is just not like a bad, nice expression because the consensus has been used. I mean, Switzerland, that's our favorite, like most important identification of the Swiss decision-making frameworks. But here, when I originally defined uh, the name of the foundation, Geneva Consensus, it had a rich scientific background attached to it. So already in 2012, I wrote a small article in UN Special where the first, even the first book was not in existence to say that we in Geneva have precisely the richness of organizations. We have the knowledge of the organizations, but I continue to state that our capacity is strongly underutilized. So which means this organization continues to work in their silos. They continue to, everybody speaks about integration. Everybody speaks about collaborative decision making, but in reality, we are not having it. So that's first thing. So going back again to the data envelopment analysis. So everybody knows the notion of Pareto optimality. So the notion of Pareto optimality or Pareto improvement is that if the society or economy is in a particular state, the next state we should be consensual or acceptable by the members of the political members or economic decision makers in a situation when nobody's situation is worsened, but somebody's situation is improved. So which means every time we make a change in decision making, every time we introduce a new policy measures, it should only provide improvements without worsening the situation of any specific group of people or enterprises or units. So scientifically, that challenge was not possible to solve. So, and this is precisely the data envelopment analysis where the model derives solutions, then the solutions are Pareto optimal, which means if we identify specific set of optimal levels of policy measures, then we say, I mean, if they are trade, investments in health, in education, whatever you name it, then we say the model scientifically says that optimal level, if we go beyond, then somebody's situation is going to be worsened. And it's only at that optimal level when everybody is going to be happy. And if everybody is happy, then we have a collaborative decision making and then we have scientific background for the consensus. Then no one decision maker will be, I mean, contradicting to what we are proposing because we are scientifically proving to everybody that if we follow common goal. And common goal means that we have set collectively specific set of 
development outcome, economic, social, environmental. And everybody around the table in Geneva, New York, you name it, we agreed before, okay, what do we want to improve? We want to improve employment, we want to improve health, education. And then we come in to our discussion already with predefined objectives. So everybody is specifying their interests. So this is purely collaborative, purely respectful to everybody's interest. And then we say, okay, we don't know what is the best set, optimal set of I mean, policies that will deliver the best results for everybody. And here you come, the model says mathematically, scientifically, based on an existing data, that these are the set of variables, policy levels, beyond which we are harming certain group of uh, interests. And then, of course, that's what is consensus ground. So this is scientific background to drive a consensus. Speaking about the calculus of consent, so this is a groundbreaking work of Jane Buchanan, who um, is considered to be a founder of political choice theory. And he was very critical when he was writing his work that economists, they speak about production function, transformation function, but actually we don't have it which is true, we don't. And an economist sometimes come up with some mathematical formulation of production transformation functions, which are arbitrary. So specific experts decide, I decide that if I put this type of input and then I'll derive a specific mathematically derived output. And the advantage, again, of data envelopment analysis that has been underestimated and not viewed until recently, that the DEA is precisely deriving empirical transformation function. So what we mean is we say we don't know how the policies are linked to the development outcomes. We don't know their relationship in terms of function, mathematical functions. But what we know, we have a data. Here are our inputs like tax, trade, whatever, and the development outcomes. And then we say if the society wants to maximize and data envelopment analysis driven models give us the optimal solution. And so that's exactly where I am making a connection with the work of James Buchanan, because what he was inspiring, in fact, mathematically, we are providing now. So I managed to make the connection between those two, uh, his theory and our approach, whereby I claim that the DA solutions are win-win or win-no-lose, which in political sense are what everybody wants. And if otherwise, if we go to the other development partners or decision makers, if you step into somebody's territory, then you have to claim why you want them to minimize something. So that helps to make the trade-offs between different development outcomes, but making trade-offs empirically, scientifically derived. So it's not going to decide, I am stronger, so you have to accept me. I have more votes, so you have to obey. But here it says, if we are looking for collective development, for development outcome for everybody, we want to satisfy everybody's needs. And this is precise set of policy levels beyond which we are harming certain people. Okay, theoretically, sometimes that can be possible. But then again, policymakers will have to see how to compensate them. What are the adjustment mechanisms to put in place? So which means it, this method gives you the optimal level and then go and decide. Either you stick to this specific level of policy interventions or with an understanding that going beyond those levels is going to harm certain circles of population or groups, yes. then those interest groups, their interest 
interest have to be taken into consideration. And I mean, respective redistribution compensation mechanism in terms of policymaking must be put in place. So that's why I like to say this is truly a technique, scientifically driven approach, which will help us to come to a consensus and consequently forge a global social contract where everybody is happy based on the scientific, I repeat, data-driven decision-making, collaborative decision-making framework. Yeah, Edward. You mentioned a nice word, happy. And I, I just want to get your thoughts. It might be a, not to be provocative, but at the same time, there's this other discourse, I think, that's going around currently if we look at the state of affairs globally and also the discussion in, say, in, in an economic sense about growth, more growth, economic growth. We know that, if I'm not mistaken, I think Bhutan has put forward a gross happiness Absolutely index. Mm-hmm. So how do we balance, I liked when you used happy and that triggered my, my thought because is there space also for this type of alternative that it's not only measuring economic progress or how people fare economically on a scale, but actually looking at, let's say, a softer indicator, which is happiness or, or how people feel. Are they content with their lives? I just like to get yeah, your thoughts on that. Absolutely. That's yeah. the brilliant comment. And that's exactly the heart of our research, because in both books, we have an entire chapter dedicated to going beyond GDP. So which means it's, I mean, it has widely been accepted that the growth cannot be considered as the best and only uh, indicator of development. For me, when I'm being a bit sarcastic to say, looking at the growth is like in the medical science, you look at the pressure of blood pressure only, or you look at the weight of the person only, whereby in order for a healthy body to perform, we have so many other indicators, including the hormones, including the different dimensions of blood analysis. But then the the researchers were hijacked or looking at the GDP only because the former approaches, methodological analytical frameworks, were not capable of going beyond GDP because they were looking at only one output. And this is exactly when the DEA is expanding. So we nicely include in our output a GDP. So we have no problem wanting countries to increase their GDP. But then we say, in addition to increasing your GDP, we want or you will have to, or that's what you claim politically that you want to have more equality in terms of gender, more health outcomes, environmental, you name it. So, But then again, as long as we have data, we can bring them into the talk. If we don't have data, then it will still be like lip service to say, yes, we want to be going beyond GDP, but we don't know exactly what and why. So this is precisely, I repeat, at the heart of our report, where we say we have multidimensional performance, where we want to have GDP+. And I guess that's the whole point of the SDGs too, you know, we have 17 goals uh, with many more indicators looking at how do we go beyond GDP to really measure development and the state of our world. I think we've covered a lot of topics today, and I think maybe I wanted to end with just, we, we talked so much about, you know, the role of science, the role of data and analysis in making better decisions multilaterally. How do you think we can bridge this gap between science and multilateralism? Who would like to go first? From, from, <laughs> from my side, I think, and also from the perspective of our work uh, with the SDG Lab, is basically you, you bridge this gap by bringing people around the table, by not working in silos, as uh, Rosanna highlighted, this notion of, of integration having people from from different backgrounds uh, work together that's extremely important and also making data accessible i think that is so key and we're living in a time of visualization uh, making things visual i think that is so important to have data that 
that can be understood and can also be visualized so that it's more accessible. So having these, but you need to have the approach of these two sides coming together in order to distill data so that actually it speaks to what can be understood by everyone. So it doesn't rest, say, in an archive or it doesn't rest in a database, but it can be extracted easily. And ultimately, as Rutana also said, is to inform decision makers. So that brings back to the origin of creating our foundation. So as we said, in our book, we came up with a methodology that allows for a collaborative decision making. And I'm trying to find a quote of the Nobel Prize winner Kopman in his Nobel lecture specified that economist as such doesn't advocate criteria of optimality. He may invent them. He will discuss their pros and cons sometimes before, but preferably up after trying their implication. He may also draw attention to situations where all of our objectives, such as productive efficiency, can be served in a decentralized manner by particularized criteria, such as profit of maximization. But the ultimate choice is made, usually only implicitly and not always consistently, by the procedures of decision-making, inherent in institutions, laws, and customs of society. A wide range of professional competencies enters into the preparation and deliberation of these decisions. To the extent that the economist takes part in this decisive phase, he does, as in a double role as an economist and as a citizen of his polity, local polity, national polity, of world polity. So what this implies is that whatever research we do, it remains a piece of article. And in order to transfer it into the political decision, that needs to be communicated. But in order to be able to communicate scientific tools to make them political actions, then it has to be implementable. Most economic research and evaluation or indexes that are just showered in the research document. You take it, so many, I mean, composite indexes exist today. They don't allow policymakers to take any further actions of improvements. Whereas our approach is precisely designed to allow policymakers to bring in new I mean, expert knowledge, and then improve the performance. And so that's why I think we have been very proud to not only to publish the books, but also create the Geneva Consensus Foundation, which enjoys special consultative status with ECOSOC since 2016. So that allows us to bring in our knowledge wherever possible. Our objective and our great hope is that we will be able to bring in our new approach, which we still believe offers a paradigm shift, whereas we can bring in different dimensions of development into a single framework for the local, regional, and global levels. And depending on who are sitting around the table, we will be able to address their specific. I mean, we can bring in a scientific piece of research to the table for the consideration of various UN organizations, and not only UN, but also private sector representatives who can decide what will be the impact of their contribution if they change a specific level of input into the framework, how will that influence the development outcome? And I think that's the type of tools we need for development banks to evaluate the impact of their interventions, because UN is going through a reform from purely output to the outcome. And I think this technique is precisely serving that objective, allowing the UN agencies or multilateral donors, national governments, to look at the effectiveness of their policy interventions. And that's 
precisely helping to make best outcome-driven decisions. Great. We've covered a lot today, so we might have to end there, but there's been so much food for thought. Thank you to you both, Rizan and Edward, for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed our audience to understand a bit more of the complexities of, of the challenges we face as a global community with the SDGs, but also some hope because there's so much work being done um, to bring us together. So you can find in the notes for the podcast, both books that Rosanna has mentioned. We'll also put a link to our series with the SDG Lab, It Takes a Global Crisis. Um, feel free to give us comments or to suggest other topics you'd like us to cover. But until then, um, bye for now. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks a lot.